iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How are we feeling this evening? Nice. Wonderful. Without any further delay, I'd like to invite you all to enjoy the trailer for Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. Someone reminded me I once said, greed is good. Now it seems it's legal. Because everybody's drinking the same Kool-Aid. Now I've been considered a pretty smart guy. And maybe I was in prison too long. One watch and one mobile phone. But sometimes it's the only place to stay sane and look out through those bars and say, is everybody out there nuts? Gordon Gekka was one of the biggest names on Wall Street before he went to prison for insider trading. That name doesn't mean anything anymore. If it weren't for people who took risks, where would we be in this world? Ooh, might want to wipe some of the drool off your face. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a my name is Jacob Moore. I'm going to marry your daughter. My daughter hasn't spoken to me in years, and you know it. I never knew my dad as a peaceful person. That always scared me. I know it sounds crazy, but people change. He's not who you think he is, Jake. He'll hurt us. Why don't you start calling me Gordon? We'll be part of the family business. You got my attention. But when you don't know what you're doing... It's fatal, Mr. Moore. So much you don't know, Jacob. They took my life, and when I got out, who's waiting for me? Nobody! This is not about the money. This is about you and me. It's about doing the right thing. It's about the game. I did tell you, Jake. I did warn you. It's easy to get in. It's hard to get out. Is that a threat? Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Oliver Stone and this evening's guest moderator, Logan Hill of New York Magazine. Well, good to see you, Oliver. Thank you, Logan. We've got, um, it's been about 23 years. A lot's happened in between, including you make a, making a movie called World Trade Center. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is your first sequel. Never did one before. Why this one? Uh, I don't consider it a sequel. A sequel is something you do to make money. I would have done a sequel in the 1990s, mid-90s. I would have been the perfect because there was a, still a generation around that would have known who Gecko was. They probably died off. So, you know, it's not a good money proposition to wait 23 years to do a sequel. <laughs> Because a lot of people don't know who the original is, and they don't know the Gecko story. So I'm fine with that. They, and Gecko is the only link to the old one. He starts it off. He kicks it off. But uh, it's a, as far as I'm concerned, it's a whole new story with a whole new uh, environment. Mm -hmm. 
uh, the Wall Street is a background. It always was in the first one in the 80s. The story was about Charlie throwing, uh, betraying his labor union father and the union itself, and Gecko cannibalizing the airline for the hidden assets and walking away with a fortune. And uh, the boy, uh, Charlie Sheen, wakes up at the end of the movie, realizes what a creep he is, mm -hmm. you know? And this movie uh, has a different, complete format because Gecko is now on the other side of the coin. He's on the outside looking in. And I think it's about the six people who are like floating around this world of the 2008 crisis. But that's background to me. It really is. It's a different entire economy, way beyond anything I thought possible would happen in 1987, way beyond it. It's like the combination of Reagan, Clinton, and Bush Jr. and Bush Sr. all kicked in over 30 fucking years of deregulation and created this environment. And you, you, it really is a systematic failure. And uh, unbelievable, but that's background only, and that's a documentary. I, you know, I couldn't make that movie, and I didn't want to make that movie. It, was, it has been written about and documented, and it's a good story, but it's a documentary. Uh, this is a story about six, six people who float around in the shark tank, uh, two, you know, a mother and a son, a father and a daughter, and two, I would say, larger-than-life psychopaths, Josh Brolin and Michael Douglas, who were after Charlie, uh, Shia LaBeouf. Mm -hmm. And... That, that idea that there's this you know, pure good and pure evil about money or there's this argument to be made, is not, it doesn't seem to be what you're up to here, right? That um, It's much more interesting than that. And there's this family dynamic that can, is the one continuity between this and the first film, or, or one, of, one of them anyway. Well, one, of the li one of the lines in the first film was uh, Martin Sheen. I always loved that line. You know, money is something that makes you do things you don't want to do. The idea is that money tests everybody. We all have loyalties. We all have... Uh, values and the values are tested by the system it tears us apart money generally causes divorces and uh, betrayals greed lust all those horrible things those juicy things happen being a lot of that over money as we all know so the issue is 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 parallel there's a parallel issue for me one is the whole ec economic issue of what happened to the banks in our country the banks became what gecko was in the, in the sense, the banks, when I was younger, used to be on this side of the foundation of the society. They were more regulated, and they were a fount. They, they always sold the idea of trust. We're the fountain of trust. They were the, the last bastion of a regulated society, and then they were deregulated, and they became totally untrustworthy because they started to play the games that the hedge funders were playing where they leveraged themselves up to 35, 40 to 1. These are the major banks. Uh, and, of course, the line was lost. And we don't know what a bank is. And I think we can talk about that in another question if you want. We just don't know what a bank is. But the truth is we have lost trust in the, in the banking system, and we've lost trust in that system of, the, of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So there is a trust issue, but the trust issue is parallel to the issue between people. Mm -hmm. If you don't have human values, you don't have civilization. And if there can't be trust between a father and a daughter or a son and a, a son and his mother or people in general, the, you, the society is diminished. Mm -hmm. It seems like part of the way that happens in this movie is people get caught up in the game more than anything else. It just almost becomes abstract at a certain point that it's so fun to move this money around, to win the next round, to compete with each other, to one-up the other guy. Um, it, and they talk about it toward the end of the film, about this game, about it sort of just obliterating everything else. Total game. I mean, when you get to the... I mean, some of you may not rec recognize 
but I've, I've been able to travel among some of the wealthy class, and it's unbelievable how they think uh, it is a game, believe me. Yeah. You got a 20 million or a $40 million mansion, and the guy next to you in Greenwich is building a $60 million mansion. It pisses you off. Uh, the guy, you have a, a $100,000 sports car, and the, guy, and the guy drives up to your house, and he's got a 200000 sports car. Pisses you off. Uh, I know guys who are fighting over uh, the hedges between their houses. You know, like you're, you cross that hedge, you, you've made your hedge six inches more on my, on my property. I know one guy who pulled $3 billion out of Goldman because the guy had violated his hedge line. So and, and, uh, uh, how this many, is a game. <laughs> and how many of those guys came up to you and said, Wall Street was my favorite movie? Oh, I think it's, it, it was very much uh, appreciated, yeah. But I'm not, that's not to say, you know, everybody is Gordon Gecko. That was a mis misunderstanding with the media. I think a lot of people went into Wall Street because they liked the original movie for its glamour and its mar and they liked the idea of working in New York and so forth. A lot of people came to the city and actually engaged. And I met a lot of them, by the way. I wish I had a commission on everybody who made money. Uh, <laughs> Just a little bit, you know, point zero zero one or something. I uh, would be fairly rich now. But uh, actually, they, uh, they, a lot of them ended up, and they didn't go to jail. You know, the whole Gecko thing is a bit exaggerated uh, because Gecko is it was a crook. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's relative. You know, what is insider trading is a big issue. You know, the old insider trading was a big deal in the 1980s. People went to jail for it. But if you think about what's gone on, you have to wonder what insider trading is now because we have these computers, we have Twitter, we have all this information, so much information that's been shared. And we know Goldman Sachs is an insider. We know uh, the, they, they made a fortune on the IPOs back in the 1990s, you know, putting out IPOs. And they were rigged. A lot of these IPOs were rigged. And they were inside deals. And people were making money on IPOs. They made a fortune on the internet bubble. So inside information has been kind of prostituted and it's sort of everywhere and it's kind of a feeling that, you know, people really don't know where the line is, I think. Well, and uh, Josh Brolin's character says, we, we don't need insider, you know, inside information anymore in a way. But on the other hand, there's this, there's this just thick, uh, you know, mess of misinformation in the film. People are sending out rumors, disseminating them through, you know, sending out, I think there's a scene where a character sends 1,500 instant messages at one time to his mass list to try to sp spread a financial rumor. And that is one big thing that's changed in Wall Street you know, in, the, in the last 23 it's years. It's a huge the technology change, you know. is really The technology is insane. I mean, back then, in the 1980s, my father, who started in 1931 as a broker, would not recognize the computerization. He used to complain in the 1960s that the volume was going too high because of the new techniques, but by the 1980s it had reached enormous, the computer was born, and uh, there was computers. So the volume increased, but no one foresaw the, what was coming. And uh, we had the birth of the, what they call high frequency trading, which is an amazing uh, story unto itself. And I think Mary Shapiro at the SEC would like to do something about it. And I think the SEC should do something about it because the bigger you are, the, bigger, the better computer you can get. And the closer you can get to the source, uh, you're gonna save 0.5 seconds and you can trade a million shares and make a quarter penny profit uh, with, and with the volume that you can do with a supercomputer you can make enough money to, you can make millions of dollars over the course of a year which is what Goldman did uh, they, their strength was really in their technology at one point and people were complaining but the SEC under Cox was doing nothing about it and uh you know, on the other, on the flip side of it, there is one character in the film who's a blogger who runs a leftist website. He seems to be one of the only people in the film with, you know, more than a, a 
complicated sense of integrity. Um, and she also, uh, unlike all the other bad guys, kind of the, the financial guys, she doesn't use a BlackBerry. She uses an iPhone. Uh, I'm just wondering why, you know. Um, no, but but, uh, the, but the point is that there's this flip side to technology in the film that uh, you know someone with a website can leverage not a whole yeah. lot of access to. Well, tech. First, uh, the character is a daughter of Gecko. I appreciate you not being a spoiler alert, but there's no problem in that. She uh, works for what was based, and I put her with the girl, a couple of girls who were at the uh, Move On Move On organization who helped her out. Laura Dawn was great. Uh, so she uh, th- was based on that idea of a, and there's a lot of those internet sites. We saw, we met quite a few of them. They're very advanced in New York, and very interesting how, how that little, it's a cottage industry in a sense. They start in lofts all over the West Side and in Brooklyn. You see these little websites, and they, you know, what's to prevent one of them from breaking through with a piece of information that would be outrageous one day? And it seems to happen well, irregularly, but it happens. So uh, I do believe that it could happen when she gets the information from her boyfriend, her fiancé, who essentially is doing what I guess Matt Talibi did with the Rolling Stone article. He's like saying, this is the way the system works. Mm-hmm. And she breaks that in. So she's breaking the equivalent of the Rolling Stone article, essentially, on the web, mm-hmm. which leads to, the, to, uh, to uh, what happens to Josh Brolin. But uh, as to what Shia does is, is illegal. Uh, in the, early in the movie, there's two... There's, Two big rumor uh, montages in the movie. When I say rumor, rumorville, we called them because power of rumor on the internet. As you said, you can instant messaging thousands and thousands of people, plus your own contacts. You can spread a, 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 a malicious uh, lie, and and Josh uh, and Shia does that. He he goes after Josh Brolin early in the movie. Uh, for various reasons, I won't tell you what. But he does pass a story, and it does get picked up. And he costs uh, Josh Brolin quite a bit of money, his firm, quite a bit of money. And that happens. That happens. And to this day, there's always these rumors that there's this whole interchange. Because if you remember, Bear Stearns went down and then Lehman Brothers went down. But there was a lot of rumors on the street. There was a lot of short selling against Bear Stearns and against Lehman as well as, hey, there was short selling against all of them. Bank of America, there was short selling against Wachovia and above all, uh, Fannie Mae and... uh, Fannie Mae and Fannie Ray. What's the other one? Fannie, Fannie Mac. Fannie Mac. Mac. Yeah, those were two outrageous stories. Mm-hmm. But that's true. I mean, and and uh, he gets it out, and he later confronts Brolin, and he says, and Brolin, he says, "You destroyed my firm," and Brolin says, "Your firm destroyed itself." And then Shia says, "You were responsible for the death of my mentor," and uh, Brolin corrects him. He says, "No, your mentor." did it to himself and he said you passed the rumors the rumors were true he said so you know it's it's a, it's a fine line jimmy kane when he went he was the head of bear stearns went to dc he testified in congress and he said in my heart i cannot prove it but i know someone laid rumors against uh, bear stearns and uh, did us did us in but he himself had been a very poor executive at that point and uh, bear stearns had some issues yeah. big issues and a lot of these guys, big names on Wall Street, actually came out in force to advise you. They responded to your queries, advised actors. Sam Waxel, even right? Sam, oh, Sam Waxel is the head of Im, was the head of Imclone, and did a great. He made a billion dollars while he was in jail, but he couldn't. It didn't go to him. He was uh, implicated in the Martha Stewart scandal for inside information. He took a bum rap, I think, but he went to jail for a few years, five years, I think it was. Mm-hmm. 
and he helped us on advice. He advised Michael on what it was like to be in jail and what it's like to come out. I think Michael had aged in the interim. My, Michael no longer resembled the character from the 80s. He, who was a much more younger man, slicker, a little bit superficial. Mm -hmm. I think Michael had aged and, and uh, weathered himself. So, yeah, Waxel, Jim Chanos, George Soros at a high level. Elliot Spitzer was very helpful because he knows the most about Goldman. He knows their tricks mm -hmm. going back to two th early 2000s. He investigated them. He also outed AIG, by the way. Mm -hmm. He's responsible for the fall of Maurice Greenberg as well as Sandy Weil. Uh, Spitzer did quite a lot of... He, I think Spitzer was one of the last honest men who really did Wall Street in. And uh, he wasn't recognized for it. He was punished uh, severely, but... He really didn't, if there had been more Spitzers on this job, it wouldn't have happened like this. It wouldn't have happened like this. Spitzer was great. And also, uh, we met with M Mayor Blumberg, who was against any change. He wanted to keep the system as it was, no, no regulations. And uh, we met at the lower levels. We met young people who had working their way up in the system and had just come on the street right at that point, which was fascinating to be two, three years in on the job training. You're at uh, City Corps. Citigroup and it, and it's sink and it goes and it's going down. Though in those days, those kids were shocked, mm -hmm. and that helped Shia a lot because uh, it was necessary to, for him to understand what it was like to be young on the street. In mm -hmm. New York Magazine, we've talked to Shia a bit about working with you on the film, and um, you know, he said you had some un unusual advice for him. Middle of a scene, you'd say, uh, "Go get drunk in that bar over there." Um, he'd come up to you with a note on a, a script. And I don't, you never know when the actors are acting or telling us the truth. One time you said he came up to you, there's a line, said, you know, look in the mirror and see yourself. He said, well, isn't that, that uh, redundant? You can just say, look in the mirror. And you said to him, he told us anyway, um, go fuck yourself, I wrote Scarface. Uh, so that's why some directors never talk to actors, right? <laughs> because you always hear it back years later in the most weirdest way. I think actors have a wonderful imagination, but except for their memories, they don't remember anything what you actually said. They, if you had a tape recorder, it'd be quite different. Actors love to stitch it into a beautiful... So uh, one line out of 15 lines becomes the, you know, the only thing you said. And they tell good stories, I have to say. It makes it, they, they, are, they tend to the dramatic, and that's good. Uh, I, my, I loved Shia. I loved working with him. I loved just being with him. I loved hanging with him. He was got a wonderful energy. And we just had a, a running joke, you know, because he he worshipped uh, Scarface and Natural Born Killers were his two favorite films, of course. So uh, whenever he would give me some uh, questions, I'd say, and I, you know, we obviously take it seriously, and we talk about. And at the end of the day, I said, "Well, fuck it, say it my way." I wrote Scarface, you know? <laughs> and he, goes, okay, yes, sir. Uh, I like that. And then, uh, but Shia was wonderful to work with, really. And I mean, this is uh, two films back to back with Josh Brolin, which is pretty unusual for you. I mean, is, is this going to be an ongoing relationship? Is going to be a third film with Brolin? I uh, love Josh. He's a uh, 40s, he was that perfect middle, middle generation between the 20s and the 60s. So he fit the role. I was very lucky to get him to play a supporting role because he played the main role in W. And I was really struggled to get him on to make it work for him. Uh, and uh, he brings a slickness to it and a beauty to it, too. I think uh, he resembles Robert Rubin a bit and uh, mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon and Lloyd, Lloyd Blankfein. Uh, definitely the and, arrogance. And th those are three of the real inspirations for that character, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. The, the arrogance of, that, of those characters. And they still, I can't tell you how arrogant money is. I mean, mm -hmm. I think we all know it in our hearts, but when you really meet it, there's just no time. We got, we got blackballed by the big banks, but we did get some cooperation from the Royal Bank of Canada, ironically. 
because they're actually, if you check out what the Canadian the Canadians did, they got they didn't get hurt in this deal. They ran clean banks, and they were they have good regulations in Canada. They didn't it's it works better. So there you go, and they let us shoot there, and they gave us access and everything, which is important for us because we needed a good looking bank. Any of you Canadians? Is that why you're laughing? <laughs> no, the Canadian banking system came out clean, and so did the dollar, the Canadian dollar. And there's, um, a lot of the, that advice that you got from these advisors made its way into the film, and sometimes literally in, uh, in the greed is, uh, there's a speech where um, a gecko says, you know, greed isn't good, it's legal now. You know, there's this, and there's a couple of lines, including this uh, ninja acronym. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's sad. I mean, I don't know who, if that's... I read it, you know, we had so much research going on. We had 15, 20 advisors who read the script, including all kinds of people. So it all blends. But uh, ninja generation was a term used for the no jobs, no income, no assets generation that's coming. Uh, I presume they mean younger people like you. I'm not sure. But uh, there was a lot of people who did get hurt, including older people. You know that. I mean, the, the 401 funds that were depleted, as well as the pension plans. It was a real heist. I mean, a real heist, and it's it's still outrageous. You know, yet I've seen four bubbles in the in my lifetime. The Vietnam War one, with during that that war, there was a great bubble, a feeling of elation in the economy. The war, because it was on, the war kind of lifted the country in a weird way, where people were making a fortune here, mm -hmm. but we were suffering over there. And then again in the '80s, we had Reagan in that whole era. And then in the 90s, we had the internet bubble, and then we had the internet, the big bubble of the uh, real estate bubble in the uh, 2000s. And, you, you know, I mean, I have to look at it with irony, not outrage. I mean, it's, that's why I use David Byrne, more of a sense of humor, because it's going to happen again in another form. You see, the bubble is the mechanism by which the system kind of feeds itself. And it's a shame, because it really does work if people would just concentrate on production an ordinary uh, work, but they always seem to need a new gimmick mm -hmm. to float. And, uh, you know, Goldman is one of those kind of companies that drives a new gimmick. They, oh, yeah, they all sit up, well, how can we make more money? They sit up, they, they dream this stuff up. They go down into their, their breakers or in Palm Beach, and they'll sit there for a weekend or a week conference. And how can we make more money? What can we sell now? Can we sell dreams? Let's sell a dream. How do we get a dream? Let's go to the Internet. Let's get a dreamscape, and we'll sell it to people. We'll do this or that. We'll sell them. Sell them something that they will buy. Mm -hmm. That's all you need, money. I know in a couple of interviews, you, you've talked about the specifics of the specific techniques or tra trading patterns, whether it's the swaps, div swaps, all this stuff. It doesn't matter so much as the, that kind of core question of greed. It seems like you think there's something innate about this and that maybe it's not going to change? Is that? Well, I think know, greed's that, in human nature, right. don't you? I mean, I think the, the movie is essentially about trust and greed and betrayal and love. Because love is a very important value here uh, in terms of facing the end of life for Gecko. It's like, who's going to be there? You know, is, are you going to have a grandchild? Are you going to have a, a daughter? Mm -hmm. No one's waiting for him at the prison. He's got a very lonely existence. Is, you know, is money going to be, is money going to satisfy him? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. And I think the movie at its basic level is about, you know, money, uh, money itself and the, money versus love, if you want to put it in the simplest terms. And just a big question, when you're coming back to this you know, 23 years later and you, you see the, the difference between this film and the original Wall Street, do you feel like you're a really different filmmaker at this point? Uh, you know, is it, are you telling different kind of stories? Well, it's, 
my, it's a world that I love to depict as a background, but I, I do feel like I'm, I'm 23 years older. I was, that was my first studio film. I was very uh, aggressive about it. I wanted to really show all these new objects in the 1980s. Consumerism was big, big. The whole uh, Reagan was, pro uh, morning in America was the theme. I mean, the idea was we were, we'd been through this slump in the 70s and he was changing everything. And money, money, money. On every uh, magazine, there were worship of CEOs, the worship of pure lucre. It was in the air. And uh, that was an era of, uh, there was in uh, the movie is aggressive about showing the new implementation, the money. This by by thirty years later, I felt I didn't want to do that. It wasn't a James Bond movie with gadgets as much as it would be a movie that it's a little bit weary of the whole of the concept of all these things. But the idea is it's there, but it's not. It's implied, but the the novelties had worn off. So I had and also the concept of emotions. I think Carrie Mulligan raises it to a new level in the, in the relationship between a man and a woman mm -hmm. that was not there with Daryl Hannah and Charlie Sheen. So I think that there's another thing going on in the movie, and I think she's the anchor of the movie in an, in an emotional way because both men need her, Michael Douglas and Shia LaBeouf, have to get her approval, in a sense, to make this movie, to, make the, to, be, to be able to, to function. And you know, Oliver has another film this year out. It's a documentary. It'll be on DVD soon, right? Is it on? South, south, yeah, of, the south border, of the border, yeah. And um, in that film, you spend a lot of time talking to leaders in South America about the political climate, particularly fairly anti-corporate uh, leaders um, who've been who've seen their countries hurt by what's going on on Wall Street. Are the, the connections between this film, were you feeling those as you were making both of these films? Different, different ball games. One's a documentary, one's a feature. But definitely the uh, Chavez, uh, Lula in Brazil, uh, Morales in Bolivia, and Ecuador and Argentina, the Kirshners, uh, they really are changing, changed the rules over the last 10 years. They really have put forward bold programs in each of their countries to control the wealth of the country. Their natural resources belong to the people, which is a novel idea for America. I guess uh, you could call it a form of socialism. Uh, they nationalized uh, the gas in Bolivia, the oil. The oil had been nationalized in Venezuela, but Hugo Chavez implemented it so that the money was really getting back to the people. And the economies improved in those 10 years, remarkably, all of them. Uh, so that, and Argentina is the biggest surprise of all because it was dead in 2002. And uh, the Kirshners uh, were mainly responsible for turning it around. So the countries uh, were denigrated by the United States because they really threw out the United States. They threw out the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, big time. I mean, they had $20 billion in loans down there back then. Now they have $1 billion. The IMF was really a bad guy in this because they fucked up on Asia. They fucked up in Russia. They fucked up everywhere in the world for years. And this was this neoliberal economics that you heard about in the 90s and the Clinton era. And it was really a disaster for the world. NAFTA was a disaster for Mexico, whatever people say. And it just hasn't worked. And now they, there was this pushback. And the United States behaved very badly towards Latin America. We, we've always been against reform in that area. And we've always been for our corporations. And it's been, a, it's been an, a secret battle, a secret war that's been going on. Mm -hmm. The movie touches on these things. It doesn't go into detail, but it does touch on it. But I think that socialism is kind of a, the, a form of socialism is a wave of the United States. I mean, the United States is into a form of it with what they did. We, we took over Fannie Mae and the government, Fannie Mae and uh, the other one, I can't, uh, Fannie, 
What? Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac. Yep. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Freddie Mac. I mean, their account that Howell Raines should be in jail. That guy was in Howell Raines. No, not Howell Raines. <laughs> Somebody Raines. <laughs> Howell something. You know who uh, I'm talking about. I, 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 anyway, yeah. the accounting of those. We'll change the names in the movie anyway. The, the accounting was just as depressing. It was worse than Lehman Brothers. And Lehman Brothers was pretty shoddy. So all the accounting. And by the way, do you remember when Enron went down? Do you remember Arthur Anderson? That was a big accounting firm in my youth most respected in the world, and they went down too, Arthur Anderson. So the accounting system, the watch that this was untrustworthy, really, un and so was the rating companies. They were untrustworthy. The banks were untrustworthy. We lost, I mean, it was a tremendous uh, shift in values. You know, the, the left always used to say capitalism is a fraud and it's blah, 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 but most people in the mainstream said, well, it works, it works, but I really think we're at a place where people wonder if it does. If it's, how could it be made accountable? And I think the government is our last resort, and I think the government is stepping in and trying to say we can be accountable, like they are in Europe. I mean, the German government does practice very strong regulations with the German banking system. The French system still has strong accounting, and you have accountability. And the English, no. I'm not talking about the English. That was a very deregulated system, but there, Northern Europe, very good, very good accountability. So the question is accountability, and the governments have to step in. You know, why when the BP thing happened, I, I said on the TV, I don't think anyone, was, they laughed when I said it, but I said, you know, why don't we take over the oil of our own country and control our own oil? Because it belongs to the people. You know, oh, what? It belongs to these firms. You know, well, I tell you what, these firms made a fortune the last 20, 30 years, a fortune in oil, and they didn't give back anything, nothing. They gave back $20 billion. You know, why not a windfall profits tax on oil companies? Or why not a big tax on speculative banks? Because this is where the big money is. Instead of talking about, yeah, they, when they make these trades, they're making them so fast and they're making such money. And some of them, they're taking risks. Yeah, let them pay more when they, when they make a profit. You know, we have to encourage uh, a tax on speculation. It's, and we can make a lot more money for the government that way. But I think socialism is in the future. It's already all over the world and it's going to come here. In some form. And, yeah, well, and I ask you about Obama, right? I mean, a lot of people are feeling a little bit let down by the actual administration after the excitement of the campaign. Um, how do you feel? I mean, and he's obviously had advisors, there's friends and colleagues of the folks who advised you on your film. Um, how do you feel about the, the actions he's been taking so far financially? It was Franklin Reigns, sorry. Oh, yeah. That was the name of the fellow who should be in jail. Uh, <laughs> So should Hal Rains. Uh, no, just joking. Uh, uh, I don't work with him. I... Uh, no, Mr. Obama uh, took a detour for me when he appointed uh, Geithner, Summers, and uh, the old gang to run the show. That was a bad, bad move. Geithner was uh, a protege of uh, Summers and uh, Rubin, Robert Rubin, who was the, one of the chief architects of where we are. So was Sandy Weil. So was Phil Graham, who was, a, I met him once. I've never met a bonehead like that. He used to teach economics, but he was a scary guy. You remember Phil Graham from the 2000 period? His wife, Wendy. All the, they were really the architects of this. Uh, a lot of these, these three or four major actions, the Glass-Steagall repeal, Commodities uh, Futures Act, and the uh, Financial Modernization Practices Act. When they ever, you, whenever you hear the word mod modernization in legislation, be careful. Modernization. It's a, uh, it's a Robert Rubin kind of word where, oh, you modernize because we can improve things. Well, watch out when they say modernization. It's a way to get rid of some very old stuff that's important. 
So anyway, the, two, the new reform is 2,000, 3,000 pages long. Barney Frank says, you know, who's going to read it? Much, only lawyers are going to read it, and the lawyers are generally from the lobby, so the lawyers are going to look for loopholes. That's their first thing they do. Mm -hmm. And they have found a few. They've got the hedge fund, the tier three, there's all tier one capitalization. So how much can banks play, in, in, play hedge funds is a question. And the banks lie like crazy. They say they only make 10% profit for themselves. And other people have said they make 70%, like Goldman made 70% in 2007 for itself. But then there's a definition of what money is for yourself, what you're holding, what your clients are holding. It's a very, it's a game, mm -hmm. very tricky game. And the banks are always like fighting against any kind of government intrusion or into their privacy. The reform bill is up in the air, but I really hope that it will t kick in and have some good, good effects. I think they can. Uh, I think the intention is there, but the, how do you, how do you, you if you, you need people to, to regulate it and to be there and to pay attention. They're there. There are a lot of good public servants, but they have to be encouraged by the administration. And I, I just, is it about time to open this up to questions, I think? Yeah, well, um, if anybody has a question, let us know. We do have a microphone we'll be bringing over, so just raise your hand and we'll be right with you. We're going to start over here on your right-hand side. Mr. Stone. Um, Recently, two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to interview uh, Pablo Escobar Jr. And he mentioned something that you were working on his father uh, on a movie about his father. Could you comment about that, please? I have worked off and on on the Pablo Escobar story, but it hasn't uh, developed yet. It depends on so many factors. I can't really confirm. Uh, you know, movies are like R&D. We do, we do f uh, developments. We, scripts are written and so forth. But... They have to come together. So it's really hasn't worked so far. It's a great idea for a story, but it hasn't worked uh, yet. Still on your right-hand side over here. Mr. Stone, I wanted to ask you first of all about the rehearsal process for your films and what you look for in actors when you're auditioning. <laughs> I think... Uh, you were, in the rehearsal process is a familiarization process. I think you go over it. I do believe in it very much. Uh, I think that you go through as many alternatives as you can, you can before you get to the floor. Because when you get to the floor, it's a money proposition where you're spending a lot more money, so it's cheaper to do it in rehearsal. And I think rehearsal's good for you. And you know, I don't, I don't think you can rehearse uh, to death. I think you can get it to a place where it becomes fresher each time or else you throw out things. And when you get to the floor, what happens is that you've, you've already tried these a few different ways, so you have alternatives in your head. And sometimes you call those up or you use a portion of them. But I love the idea of having done it before. Some people believe in improvisation on that day, and I think it's happened to me a few times, and we, but I wouldn't bet on it long term. I really do like to be prepared. Actors, uh, audition process is a... Uh, I go a lot on instinct. I, would I try not to waste time. I try not to bring people back too much uh, or anything like that. And I look at a little bit of film, but I don't look at everything. You feel it with the actor. You feel it if he's going to do it. You feel a, a rapport. And you have to go mostly with your instinct. But the actors that I uh, have brought the magic, and sometimes they improve the script enormously, and sometimes it's a, it's a wash. We have a question over here on your left. Uh, thanks. Uh, at all, um, my respect for the great movie you do. Um, thanks. Um, mm, 
you know. Sorry. Uh, your friend of Chavez, right? Your very friend Chavez. I I know feeling good with the you know the idea. I'm from Venezuela. I suffer for all the things happening in Venezuela. Believe me. I don't know. He support the, the guerrilla from from Colombia. You gonna you gonna put him in your movie like like hero and something like that. And the movie you gonna do about the border. You can hear me. You can. You you gonna do movie about border, right? You have some plans in a movie. No, I did a documentary called South of the Border, which you should see before. Because right. I, it doesn't go, it does, it does mention the FARC issue. Right. You're going to do something with Chavez. You're gonna, how are you going to do with him? You're going to put like hero or something like that? Well, I think you should see South of the Border because uh, you may not like Chavez, but he's done a lot of good for a lot of people, too. And a lot of people will disagree with you. I know he's a very controversial figure. But on the other hand, if you believe the American media, he's the devil. So I don't think we're getting, the, I don't think we're getting fil unfiltered. I think there's other sources of information on Chavez, and I hope uh, you can go to websites like Center of Economic Policy Research, uh, Mark Weisbrot. It's one of the few truth-telling things in this country about Venezuela. We have one right in front of you. How you doing? Um, regarding Bud Fox, are you going to show what happens to him? in the movie, and if not, tell us what happens to him. And right before, you dropped your wallet, so pick that up. Wow. <laughs> well, you have a Wall Street eye. <laughs> if I were you, I would have come up to the stage afterward. <laughs> you would have been a good banker. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm an honest banker, so... <laughs> an honest banker, good for you, bravo. No, you'll see for the movie, I think he explains himself. Uh, am I supposed to give it away? Oh, okay. No, I think he, he, Charlie, Charlie is true to himself. We have another question up in the front. On your right hand. Oh, hi. Um, I, I was watching uh, W again the other night. Really great film. I loved it. But I was curious, like, has, have you heard anything from Bush himself? And has he responded to the film at all? No, no, no. He hasn't. Uh, Bush has uh, written, written his autobiography, which is coming out, and I'm sure... It's going to be as uh, vacuous as his administration's. Uh. But I frankly did the movie out of a feeling that it was my role as a dramatist, not as a documentary. I wasn't doing a documentary on Bush because people said, why did you not come down harder? I felt like it was hard in its own way because it was from the inside out. It was the man's way th of thinking about himself. He likes himself. You have to realize how popular he was with the American people. He was. He got elected the second time by enough people. So he was a familiar figure. He was a guy you had to have a beer with, you know, and I think that's very important. How uh, Andy Griffith facing the crowd, the concept of the, the yokel make, uh, becoming the American hero, like Palin, Sarah Palin, or all the know-nothings who are running around the country right now. There's this tradition in America of, of the, you know, ignoramus parties. Another question over here on your left-hand side. Okay. Um, hi, Mr. Stone. I'm a big fan. Uh, this is somewhat of a, a strange question, I think, but um, if, if you had, like, um, one more... Pro Let's say if you, if, you, if you could only make, like, one movie, uh, if, this, if this was, like, your last movie, uh, what in your heart would be, like, this movie that you could make that would be, like, the final movie you made in your life? 
that you would most satisfy with? Oh, that's, you know, part, that's a really personal question, and I think it's a part of a mystery that we should keep. In other words, uh, the next movie I make, I really should try to come... It comes from a very special interior place, and I really don't want to give it away because it loses some of its magic for me. And anyway, I don't really know right now. <laughs> I am working on a documentary for the last two and a half years, almost three now, called The Untold History of the United States, which is 12 hours long, which I'll deliver uh, early next year to Showtime uh, for television. And I really, it's, uh, it's about the things that are, we are factual, that have been printed and written about and, and forgotten, essentially, and the patterns that result. So it's another interpretation of our history for the children, my children, and the next generation, I hope, that would be a different view of our history than the one we've been getting in school. We have one in the back, towards the middle. Hi. Um, I want to know if in your movie you have something about how the middle class, I mean, millions of people have lost their jobs because of the financial meltdown in 2008. And... Um, a lot of the middle class have become poor. I wonder, you know, I mean, it's really disgusting how some guys like Gecko think they can make $500 million and then other people are losing the place where they live. They have to apply for food stamps. And, um, and also another thing is that I don't think it's a coincidence that your birthday and the greatest financial meltdown is September 15th. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bummer birthday, I'll tell you. That was a really a bad birthday because I had... W was coming out that uh, we, uh, month, the next month, and uh, I knew I was dead in the water. The moment that uh, economy hit the bumps, Bush was a persona non grata completely. And ironically, I, my fate was tied to his fate. So when he disappeared, from, no one trusted him at that point anymore when the economy went. I mean, before that, there was an argument. And actually, before September, McCain was still in the running. For, he was, there was still a close race. So they, the film would have had more pregnancy then. But when the economy hit, then it was clear that Obama would win. Uh, Bush was dead. So it, did, it hurt me. And more, more, not only did my pocketbook get hurt, but the, uh, the movie died that weekend. Wow, what a bummer. Uh, as to... Uh, no, this is not that movie. Uh, you're going to be disappointed then. The original, you see, the 1987 movie, when it had the labor union, the father figure of Martin Sheen is the labor union, and his, fa and his son betrays him, and he, Gecko rips, rips the airline apart, and it's very pregnant to that situation. But if you look at the landscape now of, of Wall Street, there is no labor unions of any consequence. They don't have any power. When was the last time they were scared of a strike? There has been no strikes. Think about it. Reagan broke the back of the strikes with the uh, air controllers. He got rid of the air controller strike. So there's been a significant change in labor union perception. The, uh, the labor unions only got hurt in this new meltdown through their pension funds when they got wiped out. So the, it's an ironic thing that the, the, the labor union was really part of the consuming class. And in that vein, Susan Sarandon is the only middle class figure in the film. She's a mother of Shia LaBeouf. She's a, she was a nurse a good nurse, apparently, and she, she quit to flip houses and become an owner or an entrepreneur. And she flips houses, and she's way over, overstretched in the movie. But she's the only middle-class person. 
It really is about New York and Wall Street and that milieu where it's all a game, except when it comes to the values of love and uh, trust. But that's a game. So no, I, th I don't think that's a documentary, and I think or another movie about somebody in the middle class who was hurt by all this. You don't sense that value because that's to me. I was inside the Wall Street world. We've got time for two more questions. Over here on your far right. Yes. Mr. Stone, uh, I'd just like to start off by saying it's an honor to have you be able to accommodate so many fans on a such personal, and I'd like to celebrate this with Apple bringing this kind of a caliber of an actor and director as yourself. My question to you, sir, is it anything your audiences have not seen that you would desire to do that you haven't had a chance to get the flag to say, whether it be a Western or a horror film? Can you share that with us? Is there a film that you haven't done yet that you might would like to do? I, w I would love to answer your question, I, but again, it's stuff that I'd really want to do. I'd like to keep it inside and keep it because, you know, I'd lay it out and, you know, in this new world, it'll be somewhere, you know, be on a television show pretty soon. You know, television is right up our ass. But uh, I, I could tell you some stuff that I tried to do that didn't get made that I would return to would be, one would be the My Lai Massacre, which was a great story, actually. And we had a great take on it. And that was set in the, that was the Eli Massacre of 1968, which is an amazing story of uh, heroism and, and cowardice. And uh, basically, we were, about, we were about to shoot it. We had the village built. We had all everything cast, and we were ready to go, and three weeks to go, and it tumbled. It fell out. And ironically, it was uh, financed at that point by the Merrill Lynch Hedge Fund. Can you believe that? And it was like late 2007, and the fund got shaky on the movie. And we, I didn't know at that point, and Lowe, we didn't know that the, the crisis was happening, but it was the beginning of that moment in time. And they, they pulled out, the financing crashed, the movie was canceled. All those sets were destroyed, all the money was lost. So we were one of the first victims of six million dollars who were lost of, in preparation of that meltdown. That was just lost money, it's gone. So now in order to remake the movie, to make the movie, which I would still do, I'd have to inherit that six million dollar debt. But that's the price, one of the prices, the ones unseen, the hidden price of these kind of uh, bets that Wall Street makes. We have the last question over here on your right still, Mr. Stone. Hi, Mr. Stone. Uh, Craig Raddick's huge fan. Uh, question. Um, in the first Wall Street, the one with Michael Douglas and uh, Sean Young, they had a boy. I remember that from the movie. And this one, you have a girl. Um, I don't remember her from the first movie. That's 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 very correct. The, but the boy had an operation. No, uh, uh, the boy uh, commits suicide in the movie. We explain it uh, very. It's very eloquently explained by Michael uh, in a scene in the movie. Rudy was his name. He was played by my older son. And we, uh, the girl, was born in the period between his bust. And he didn't, go, he didn't go to jail for a few years. He was out on appeal. So she was born right about that time. And then she grows into uh, Carrie Mulligan, who doesn't want him, like him, want anything to do with him because of the things he's done to the family. There's no family there. She has no good role models at all. You'll see when you catch the movie. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank Lola. you very much. For the, thank you all for your questions. Guys, thank you very much to Oliver Stone. One more time, thank you again to Oliver Stone for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful evening.